Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Maricel Maffini. Uh, she's an experienced researcher committed to public health advocacy through regulation and oversight of chemical exposure, which seems to be everywhere. Um, she's an independent consultant right now. Uh, she has a doctorate degree in biological sciences and more than 25 years of research experience in the fields of carcinogenesis, reproductive biology, and endocrine disruption. So, Marisol, thanks for coming. My pleasure, Richard. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, tell me, why are you an advocate for public health? You know, it's probably obvious, but, you know, some people don't seem to be. Why did you choose to uh, work in that area? Uh, I'm working now in the area of food safety, and everybody eats, as far as I am concerned. One way or another, we all eat, and food is um, a vehicle for many chemical exposures. So I think that working on ensuring that our food is safe, we are protecting um, the great majority of the people, at least from chemical exposures. Mm. Yeah, and I realized, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you don't see how the food came into the restaurant, how it was packaged, how it was stored, you know, if it's organic or not, et cetera. You know, even when you go to the grocery store, stuff can say organic or farm-raised or be packaged, but you have no clue what happens to get that food to you. So mm -hmm. um, I guess with that, you know, with that insight, like what's, um, what's your overall view of the food landscape? Is it, uh, you think a lot of food is really exposed to a lot of, uh, of chemicals or are there certain foods and places that really are doing well and doing a good job of keeping that exposure down? Well, there are different ways that chemicals get into the food supply from, uh, you mentioned organic, from pesticides, pesticide application or herbicides, anything that happens in the farm, uh, but also then from the farm to the table, there are many ways that chemicals can get in. Some are added on purpose to make food uh, last longer, to make it more palatable, uh, have better, more striking colors, but others come through um, a friendly ride type of things. They get into food from contact with the processing equipment, um, manufacturing machinery, or final packaging. Um, so I am mostly focused on what happens in the manufacturing of food um, more than what happens directly in the farm. So I'm not working necessarily with pesticides in the pesticide um, fields, but uh, rather what are the chemicals that people in general call food additives, um, how those are regulated, how do we know they're safe, who makes decisions about whether or not they're safe. In, I, I, I couldn't say in when you're looking at um, so-called processed foods, which ones are better than others. The government and food manufacturers have the obligation to make um, safe food. So 
we are assuming as consumers that we are assuming that all the foods in 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 the supermarket are safe. Right. True. True. Are there any particular foods or classes of foods that you see have significant problems? Not really. No, I'm mostly looking at what are the additives that are added to foods. Some of them you will know because they are they are listed in the ingredients list, although some of them are obscured. For instance, anything that is is listed as an artificial flavor or natural flavor or spice, we don't really know what is in it. It's usually a mixture of of um, substances that make a, a chip taste like ranch um, uh, ranch flavor, uh, but it's not a single chemical. And there is no obligation to specify what are the what is the composition of that um, lime flavor that you see on the uh, potato chips or any other flavors for for candies or things like that. There is also um, the issue that chemicals that get into the food from the manufacturing equipment or from the final packaging, those are also, we don't know them because they are not um, labeled um, in, in in a package. However, when you measure, when you test foods, and you know more or less what you're looking for, you can find those in, in the food that you're testing. Some of them what, are what, common. What governs, yeah. Yeah, what governs whether um, an ingredient is listed on the label or it's um, listed under an umbrella term like spices or natural flavoring? That is, there is a labeling regulation. Um, so those, those are not, um, those are excluded from being um, listed. There are other things that are called processing aids, for instance, that are used to make certain foods and they may disappear when you're in the processing of the food. They, they play a role and then they are completely consumed and they are not in the final product anymore. But some others remain and those are also not, not um, required to be labeled. For other ingredients, when because they are usually in larger amounts, those are labeled like um, you know you have like citric acid or hydrogenated oils or sugar or or um, serum uh, syrup uh, high corn syrup. So those type of things those are usually labeled. But for the other things, basically there are a lot of things behind the label. So what are some of the interesting uh, things you found that From, are really important for people to know? When, when I started working on this field of, of food additive safety, my, I was surprised by the fact that the agency that regulates food additives, the Food and Drug Administration, doesn't really know what is in the food. How could they not know? What do you mean? Oh, well... The law that regulates food additives was passed in 1958. Congress did a quite decent job. The law has a very strong safety standard. Um, you have to show uh, that there is a, that the, your product is safe before you can put it in the market. However, the, there is an exemption in the law that was mostly for things like vinegar and oil and sugar that said that those things were already known to be safe. 
is something called generally recognized as safe exemption. What happened is that with time, and because they were generally, generally recognized to be safe, they didn't have to be tested and tell the FDA, yes, sugar is safe, and here is how we show it. But with time, that exemption became the norm. So now most of the new chemicals that are added to food goes through that exemption or as a loophole. Some people say that the loophole actually swallowed the law. And because the FDA interpreted that, that exemption as they are not obligated to receive information from the manufacturers or the other way around, the manufacturer doesn't have the obligation to tell the FDA about the chemicals, about where they're putting it, how much they're putting on, whether or not they're safe, there are at least a thousand chemicals that FDA has never looked at, never reviewed for safety. And in general, we did an assessment and there are approximately 10,000 chemicals that are allowed to be used directly to, into food uh, or uh, that can become in contact with food. And they are okay to be then in the diet. What's the point of looking at certain chemicals and ignoring thousands of others? Well, as a manufacturer, you have um, you can take two routes when you have a new product. You can tell the FDA, submit your assessment that the chemical that you're using in the concentrations, in the amount you're using it, in the foods you're putting in, is safe, you send that assessment to the FDA to review and the agency look at it and ask you questions. And then the FDA, if they agree with your assessment that that use is safe, they give you a letter saying, we agree with you. We don't have further questions. Or the manufacturer could not tell the FDA, go its own way and have its own toxicologist, its own scientist to determine that it's safe or hire consultants to tell uh, them whether the assessment is right, is safe, those uses are safe, but they don't have the, the obligation to tell the agency. So they can voluntarily tell the government what they are doing, or they can keep it secret. Well, why would anyone volunteer them? Well, you have an advantage if you want to do business, um, you have a letter from the government saying, um, we agree with you. And that is, um, you know, a good thing for uh, your customers when they ask you, well, who, who said this is safe? Um, so for what, others, what's, the behavior, what's the behavior of larger organizations versus small? Do larger tend to always get the letters or not get the letters or small? When we, well, when we did relatively short, investigation on that, we didn't see much difference between the large corporations and the smaller, the smaller companies. And the large corporations, sometimes they submit um, their assessment to the agency. And if they sense that the agency is not sure, is not going to go along, and they, they don't necessarily share their, their, their conclusions, they can withdraw that request for review. And they can go and market and sell the products anyway. Um, and even they can do, they can sell and, and, and market the product even without when the FDA is still reviewing 
or even before they send it to the FDA. So what we saw, though, was that there are many, many of the new ingredients are usually um, chemicals that are already in the market as dietary supplement ingredients. So some of, some of the companies are using this venue of FDA saying, well, this is generally recognized as safe to be in food, and they are putting dietary supplements in the food supply. Um, we know that those are not necessarily um, um, very well studied, to put it mildly. <laughs> Once a substance is GRAS grass, um, is it ignored and then it's just assumed no matter how much of it, it's fine? Like, does it have any limitations still? Um, no. Some of them are, are self-limited because they could produce an odd flavor or something like that if you put too much. Uh, the, the thing is that if you don't know where they are and in which amounts, you really don't know how much you are consuming of it. Um, and there is one very specific uh, requirement in the law from 1958 that I say was strong that says that when you do an assessment for a new additive, you figure out if it is toxic, which kind of toxicity it has, if it affects the liver or it could affect the brain or it could affect the kidneys. So once you know how your chemical is potentially toxic and where in the body, then you have to take into consideration other chemicals that are already in the diet that may be targeting the same organs. So it's something called cumulative effect. So the law is very specific and says that when you are assessing the safety of an additive, you have to consider, you have to take into account any similar chemicals that are in the diet and that they can have similar health effects. So you don't overwhelm the system. You don't overwhelm an organ because it's being hit by several chemicals that are in common foods, that are common in the daily diets and you're constantly hitting the same organ. Imagine like a drip, 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 a faucet that is um, dripping water in, in your bathtub. At some point, it's going to give in. So what Congress says, you have to take into consideration those things. You already are supposed to know what is in the food supply and you, you are supposed to know how much people are exposed to that. You have to make sure that the amount that is safe to consume doesn't go over the amount that people are actually consuming. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So you have to control the risk. I just realized that there's a certain substance that people get in foods, and if it's in a lot of foods, and they eat all those foods. Well, let's say they, I don't know, they, they go crazy. They, they're obsessed with avocados and they eat them all the time. Even mm -hmm. if... um. There's a substance in there that's normally at safe levels. If someone eats a lot of a given food, they can have too much of it where it can cause them harm. I know they can't control for that, but is that even thought of or addressed? Yeah, well, that, that is, you know, when you're eating too much of one food, uh, even good things in large amounts are bad for you. <laughs> um, if you, for instance, if you take too much uh, fish oils, for instance, and you eat fish and you take your supplement with fish oil and you're in a, in a seafood rich diet 
at some point, all those good fatty acids that come from the fatty fish are going to become a problem. You may have bleeding problems. You are not clotting anymore as fast as you should because too much of good things also can be a problem. The issue is that when you have chemicals that are allowed to be there, each individually we're tested somehow. We know somehow how much uh, you need to take to cause a problem. But when you don't know how many of those are together in the diet, even if you have a a very um, diverse diet, with time, that could cause a problem. The issue was what, uh, and this is my interpretation of what Congress was trying to do. They wanted to prevent chronic diseases. They wanted to delay as much as possible the onset of a disorder or a dysfunction of an organ or a blown out disease. So by looking at all the chemicals that hit an organ together as a class, you have a safe number, a safe amount for the entire class rather than for each individually. Let me give you an example. Nitrates are common in cold cuts, you know, for curing meats and things like that. Nitrates affect how the thyroid gland Uh, how the iodine enters the thyroid gland. And you need the thyroid gland to produce thyroid hormones so you have your normal metabolism and everything is running okay. Now, if you are a woman and you are pregnant, the thyroid hormones that you produce are absolutely crucial for the development of the brain of your baby. So nitrates produce that. So you have a diet with nitrates. You have a diet with perchlorate. It is a contaminant uh, from rocket fuel, but it's also used in packaging, in food packaging. Perchlorate also hits the thyroid in the exact same way as the nitrate. Then you have another contaminant that is also used in packaging. It's also coming from cigarette smoke called thiocyanate does the exact same thing in the thyroid. And then you have other chemicals like bisphenol A and phthalates and others that also uh, target the thyroid. So at some point, what what Congress intended was that all those chemicals that we know individually attack the thyroid, you should look at them together as a class. Oh, because of what complementary or synergistic effects? they could have at least an additive effect on the gland. So what you want to do is to prolong the time that it takes that thyroid to become diseased. If you're doing it individually and you allowed different amounts of each of those chemicals to be in, in the foods, you don't know how much when you cross that, that threshold of um, the thyroid just giving up. Yeah, I guess they could have an additive, a multiplicative effect, or if they uh, affect, again, the same organ, you know, you could, uh, hmm, interesting. So, I mean, there needs to be regulation and things looked at on the manufacturer side, but also on the consumer side. Is anyone advising consumers, and can they even be advised 
you know, hey, these class of things contain this, that, and the other. And if you have these combinations of things, you're making it more likely you're going to have a problem. Um, there are some organizations that try to advise consumers. For instance, the most famous case is bisphenol A or BPA. So BPA is used to make polycarbonate plastic. You know, the hard, very transparent um, plastic um, that is usually in your in your glasses. Your glasses are usually made of polycarbonate uh, if you wear glasses. But uh, it's also used it to coat the inside of metal cans. But bisphenol A was um, identified in the um, early 1930s as an estrogen. So it works just like the natural estrogen, that is the female hormone, the main female hormone. So people understood that there are tons of studies on bisphenol A, and that became, people became aware of it and started demanding that their baby bottles that are, were made of polycarbonate with BPA um, were not sold anymore. There was a huge um, campaign by consumers in Canada, I think that's where it started, with sports bottles. They didn't want their sport bottles with BPA in them because when you use the bottles, the plastic, the BPA leaches and you consume it. So that was so big that the, the Canadian, the huge Canadian uh, sports chain um, decided not to sell those bottles anymore. And then it moved to the baby bottles, huge campaigns advising parents to demand uh, BPA-free baby bottles. And then that also happened. Um, so there are very few specific specific examples where the public were, they gain aware, awareness of what was happening and what those chemicals are and what they cause. And especially if children are involved, those things, um, they pay, the public pay, pay a lot of attention. And then they use the power of the wallet, you know, the power of the purse. They, they go and but, buy but is things. That enough? Is that enough to just get no. rid of BPA? And I mean, there's, there's no. like a hundred more things in there, you know? Correct. So that is why I am doing the work I'm doing. I'm working to have a more comprehensive change in the policies, regulations, and in the science that is used to make safety decisions. So everybody benefits from it. As, as families don't need to go to the supermarket and start figuring out what food is safe to eat. That is the responsibility yeah. of the government and, and food manufacturers. Right. So, is, is, there, is there any uh, food testing equipment that you can use at home, even simple stuff for like fruits or vegetables? Or, I mean, I know it would be like, you know, you need a whole lab to analyze everything, but is there any simple <laughs> yes. things out there? Um, no, not really. There are certain things that you can do. Like and the most common one is like the, what everybody says: do not microwave plastics. Try to use as many holding, not Tupperware, but to hold your food, your your leftovers. Try to have um, glass glass based um, containers. Be careful and wash the fruits and vegetables. I I know that uh, one of the main messages um, is to eat organic foods, but those are not, first of all, they're not everybody can afford them. 
Um, second, it's not guaranteed that they don't have other contaminants. Um, let me say perchlorate, again, the rocket fuel. Perchlorate is also uh, a decomposition uh, contaminant of bleach. The bleach that you have at home or, or is used to wash uh, vegetables. So if you're using bleach that is old and wasn't be, was not um, protected from the light or, or the heat, it will produce perchlorate. And you are in the fields uh, collecting vegetables and you may dunk them in tanks with bleach because nobody wants pathogens. Nobody wants, you know, salmonella or E. coli or other, other uh, nasties like that. But if you don't take care of the bleach, if you don't manage the bleach, those vegetables will be loaded with perchlorate. Oh. And perchlorate, as I said before, is, a, is, is an endocrine disruptor. It affects the thyroid. So when you look at the assessments, the measurements that FDA did of foods, you can find very high levels of perchlorate in spinach, collard greens, uh, lettuce, um, peppers, um, fresh vegetables. Um, the perchlorate doesn't go away. Um, even, unless even if you, you wash them with water? You have to wash it well. Yes, if you wash it, yes, it will go away. Same thing with um, bologna. Bologna was the highest, was the food with the highest amount of perchlorate measured by FDA. And yeah, I've heard it, of like the dirty dozen, you know, I remember a program about that certain fruits mm -hmm. and vegetables that were like the worst 12 that were sprayed a lot to avoid or be careful with. Right. But that is on the side of pesticides. These are right. other, uh, you know, bleach is allowed to be used um, in contact with food to clean and peel um, vegetables and cut them. But as I said, it's a management thing. If you manage that bleach properly, you may not have that problem. But how do you control for that? So how do you know if you have uh, if you're at the grocery store and you're buying you know I don't know a rutabaga or something if it's been soaked in bleach or not can you know no so it's better to just assume every vegetable every fruit wash it no matter what wash it yes yes wash it huh. not going crazy you but you know wash it <laughs> yeah. huh. hmm. it can also have you know dirt and other things so <laughs> it won't hurt. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've, I've spoken to a lot of people that uh, talk about healthier diets. So they'll say, like, avoid processed foods and shop on the mm -hmm. edge of the grocery store. But then there's another level that you can take things to where not only do that, get fresh meats and things like that and vegetables, but wash the vegetables and all the produce, too. Right, right. And I guess beyond that point, you know, you're, there's only diminishing returns and you can only do so much. But I guess at least those two things are will be a big help. Yes, exactly. What about organic versus, you know, standard? Do, uh, do you know if there's much of a difference in fruits and vegetables between organic and non? I, I'm not a specialist in nutrition, but those that know, they said that the nutrition is exactly the same. The difference is in the, uh, um, those that were um, spray with pesticides or some other products were used. Um, there may be residues and that, you know, if you don't clean up the vegetables or the, or the fruit, uh, you, the, those chemicals enter your body and uh, 
is especially you know complicated for women that are pregnant. Um, there is a particular concern when you are developing uh, organs, uh, especially the brain. Um, develop organ development is such a coordinated process. It's like a symphony. Everything happens has to happen at a particular time in a particular way, given particular signals, etc. And you, if you start changing those things, what happened was supposed to happen first, happened third, and you know things may not look abnormal when the baby is born, but there may be functions that are, don't work well, and they may manifest even years later. Um, especially the brain, anything that happens to the brain when it's being wired, uh, you cannot go back and rewire the brain. So some of those pesticides are known for affecting brain development to the point that you can actually see differences when you scan the brains. Columbia University has a beautiful study uh, where they actually do MRIs and in kids that have, have had different exposure to pesticides, the shape of the brain is, is slightly different. So what is the, uh, the near-term future of food safety in your eyes? What's going to change and you know, what's being addressed right now? Well, um, we have had a few success stories. Um, we, I work with a group um, of public interest organizations, and we have uh, found a way to get FDA to act as a regulator. By the way, all the, the reviews that they do of um, what, what industry submits to them, uh, industry doesn't pay a penny. There are no fees, no user fees for FDA. So everything that FDA reviews from industry is paid with taxpayer dollars. And industry has a, a way to ask the FDA to do something that is through something called petitions. So they were historically used to ask FDA to approve chemicals. Well, in 2013, uh, we figured that there was nothing that would prevent us from using the same tool to ask the FDA to remove approvals, to revoke approvals, to ban chemicals. So we started using that tool to get FDA to act. And we have some success stories. We got FDA to ban flavors that cause cancer through a petition like that. We got FDA to ban, um, based on unsafe uses, um, these chemicals called PFAS, um, the fluorinated chemicals, also called forever chemicals, um, the long chains, those that really accumulate in the body. They were used to make uh, pizza boxes, um, uh, grease-proof, um, and other takeout containers, things like that. And through a petition, uh, we managed to get FDA to ban those uses. Um, we also got FDA to ban the use of um, lead. Lead, you know, the metal, the heavy metal, uh, was used in uh, hair dyes uh, for men. Um, progressive hair dyes. Um, so that one was also successful. The industry contested that, and now it's in the it's in it's in the hands of FDA again. Apparently, industry is interested in in defending the use of lead, that is a neurochemical and neurotoxicant, and is a carcinogen. 
to continue to be using hair dyes. We also have two other petitions uh, that FDA is reviewing, one on perchlorate um, and one on another uh, chemical family called phthalates. So through those mechanisms that take time, uh, but we managed to set some precedents that now we can continue to use to get the agency to um, do better safety assessments. The other thing is that we're working on is getting the agency to update the science they use to make decisions. Some of the principles and assumptions they are using are really outdated. They are using science from the 60s and 70s um, in some in some cases. Um, so the decision is going to be as good, as good as the science you use to make them. So um, those, those are the two main, main things are, uh, I'm working on. I'm working also with the private sector. There are companies that are trying to do better. They see, uh, they have seen the changes in, in consumer demands uh, for better products. So I'm working with them on uh, helping make better materials, better products, uh, using less hazardous chemicals and um, new new chemicals uh, that they develop that are actually tested using uh, current knowledge, uh, scientific knowledge, rather than you know the science from the fifties. Right. Well, very good, Marcel. What's the best way for people to find out more and to get in contact? To get in contact with me, they can follow me on Twitter. My handle is M as in mother, V as in Victor Maffini, M-A-F-F-I-N-I. And then they can just Google me. Or if they are into looking for scientific papers, um, they can go to PubMed and put my name, name there and they can see all my publications. And my email address is usually in, in those publications as well. Okay. Well, very good. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.